Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and return Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory or on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Additionally, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. Today, I am pleased to welcome Greg Emerson to the podcast. Greg first found himself in Morocco in 2003 as a Peace Corps trainee, but he never swore in because they were evacuated when the United States entered the war in Iraq. Then he went on to serve two years as a Peace Corps volunteer in Peru, high up in the Andes Mountains. We talk about the similarities and the differences between Morocco and Peru, and his daily life as a Peace Corps volunteer. Now, Greg is a journalist by training, and the way he tells his stories, it's very clear that he knows how to captivate an audience. I love spending time with him and getting to know more about his Peace Corps story, and I think you guys will also really enjoy this episode. Without further delay, here is episode 23 with Greg Emerson. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. I'm Greg Emerson, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Greg, I'm very excited to have you on the show today. We've been exchanging emails after you stumbled across my podcast, and it was very funny that I had actually previously stumbled across your podcast before starting, and I had an opportunity to actually record a little something for your show that we just did before we started this interview. So now I'm really excited. I mean, we've been hanging out now for two two and a half hours just talking about different experiences in our life related to Peace Corps and all these things outside of Peace Corps, but now I'm it's very, uh, yeah, I guess excited. I can't fit a better word at the, at the very moment to talk about your service since you actually served in two different countries. Right. So starting off, let's g- give us a little bit of background of who is Greg Emerson? Where did you serve in Peace Corps? What years? What were you doing? Yeah, I, you know, I have had an international life my since I was a child. My father is French. And uh, so I used to spend summers in Europe. I used to spend winters in Europe. I always sort of had a broader perspective on the world, I think, and that that made Peace Corps a pretty natural thing for me Mm -hmm. to do. Uh, I went to college at UC Berkeley, and I studied political science, expecting to to pursue a career in development. Um, I had the good fortune in high school of uh, taking a trip with a small group to South Africa, which was my sort of first encounter with, with real poverty and with conditions in the third world, so to speak. And so when I graduated from college, I knew, you know, instead of just jumping into a corporate life and, and starting to make and save money and plan for a career, that I would pursue some, you know, real world on the ground development experience and uh, be able to take that into my career as an aid worker, as a development worker later on. So I applied to the Peace Corps, had 
barrage of medical tests. It went on, the whole process went on for at least eight months, maybe 10 months, uh, until one day I called Peace Corps to ask them, what the, what the hell is up with my application? Like, is there any update? And the person on the phone looked it up. They were like, oh, actually, it's been sitting here approved, but I think, you know, some wires got crossed and you weren't assigned yet. So in real time on the phone with this woman, she's like, all right, so we got Mali departing soon and we got Morocco departing soon. So like, what do you want? And I, you know, just expecting to get a status update on my application, I I asked her for a night to sleep on it and eventually... Uh, decided to go to Morocco. I was very interested in the Arab world, and, and uh, of course, it was becoming more and more important. This was in 2003, so I graduated mm-hmm. college in 2002 and uh, experienced, you know, witnessed 9-11 from afar uh, from my house in California, and I just was very interested in, in learning more about the, the Arab world and about Muslim culture and and about how that geopolitical situation was, you know, starting to impact our lives here in the States more than it ever had before. So I went to Morocco and spent about four months there, never formally swore in. I was part of a group that we went through training and in the middle of training, we were consolidated uh, when the Iraq war started, which was in March of 2003. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were, it was touch and go. We, we weren't sure if we were going to stay. We weren't sure if we were going to go. So we never swore in. Eventually, we were whisked out of the country on you know, less than 24 hours notice. And uh, I spent a summer traveling and killing time before I was reassigned to Peru. So starting in, I guess it was about October, September, October of 2003, I shipped off to Peru and spent my two years high in the Andes Mountains in Peru as a health volunteer from 2003 to the very end of 2005. Mm-hmm. And since you had the experience of living brief, briefly in Morocco and then going to Peru, what, in what ways were they similar? I mean, there are two vastly different places, but in, in talking to all these different volunteers, it seems like there are threads of commonality of our Peace Corps experience. So what did you see that was the same in these two very unique places? You know, it's interesting because Morocco was a a very old program at the time. It had been operating since the 60s when I got there in 2003. So there was a huge amount of local staff, a great institutional knowledge and a history of working with volunteers. Whereas in Peru, that program had reopened a year before I got there Mm -hmm. after having been closed for 30 years. It was one of the original programs in the 60s. And then uh, there was definitely a wave of anti-colonial reactionary sort of uh, politics against the United States. The program was closed in Peru and then it just reopened. An amazing Peace Corps story. But uh, when the program was active in the 60s, a couple, a married couple served in a rural village in Peru and had a, you know, a great relationship and a mentorship with this young child named Alejandro Toledo, who, while the Peace Corps program was closed for 30 years, rose up through the ranks of Peruvian politics and became president in the early 2000s and then invited Peace Corps back. So the program started up again because of its involvement in Peru in the 60s. And, but it was, of course, starting from scratch. So Mm The even though the infrastructure, the support, and the the operational aspects of the Peace Corps were completely different, what was interesting was was still the fact that every single volunteer in every single area was uh, 
sort of had to had to do the same work of explaining their existence and their reason for being there and engage with locals for the first time, uh, you know, in our training groups and speaking to current volunteers when I was in Morocco. And of course, I didn't get the full sight living out in the, in the middle of nowhere kind of experience. Uh, it was still it was still very clear that the idea of an American coming to volunteer in a foreign country and giving up two years of their life uh, without very much money to show for it was mm-hmm. still a very foreign concept in both places and something that locals or uh, volunteers that had been there for a while, it was something they dealt with a lot. So to sort of, you know, you're, you're forced to, to explain why you're there and why you care. And it's something that for me, I had never thought so critically about, you know, joining the Peace Corps seemed like a pretty natural progression of my interests and, and sort of my planned career path. So to be faced with people asking me, like, what are you doing here? Why would you give up your family for a couple of years? Why would, you, why would you come and do this? I, I heard those same questions in both places. And, you know, it definitely helped me when I was in Peru to have faced those questions before because, you know, what I realized was my home is wherever I am. You know, I'm not like leaving home to spend two years and then go back home. I didn't know what I was going to do after the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily plan on moving back in with my parents or just doing what I had been doing before. So having had that experience, you know, my mindset was already pretty, pretty solidly in living in the present and you know, I don't live in the States. I live in country. This is my home for the next two years. And after that, who the hell knows whether I'm in the States or in a completely other country or still in my Peace Corps country. Mm -hmm. Those were all equal possibilities. So I think it helped me establish a lot of trust with my community to say, like, I didn't have one foot back in the States, but rather I was there to see what happened and to just live my life and and share my life with them and, and, you know, share their life with me. And so that core sort of idea of like, what are you doing here was something that, you know, an old program and a new program, it was, it was a question that every volunteer had to face and answer for themselves. Mm-hmm. So you went into Peace Corps thinking you were going to work in international development. You know, you, you had studied political science, you'd been raised sort of in this international household, yeah. and that's what you wanted to do, and that's why you went to Peace Corps to get that on-the-ground experience. I know what you currently do, which is not international development. Right. What happened and why, as it relates to your Peace Corps experience? I mean, it's, it's, it's an easy answer I can give you. So I am, I am a journalist now. I work for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I'm in, I work on the mobile app, so I'm not you know, a reporter. I'm not doing international or political reporting or anything like that. But I am a journalist at heart and started out in journalism because of my love of storytelling. And it was, so my experience in Morocco, when I was evacuated from Morocco, it was such a whirlwind and a crazy experience for me. I had never had much contact with the U.S. government and the logistics. And it was surprising to me, you know, I expected, okay, if there was going to be an evacuation, we would go and we'd fly back to the States. But it was not nearly that simple. So in Morocco, this whole evacuation process to see the operational, the logistical aspects of it, and they closed down the airport for us. They didn't tell us when our plane was leaving so that we wouldn't 
call our family and somehow leak the fact that there would be a plane full of Americans that would be a sitting target. Uh, so there was a lot of secrecy, a lot of official procedure around this evacuation that to me was super interesting. And I knew at the time, like, this is probably an experience that people don't tend to have. So I wrote about that experience. I wrote about being evacuated and after such a short time, but after some real connections had been made in Morocco and, and I came to, to care a lot about the country and its people and was very excited about spending two years there. So to be ripped out from that was just an interesting experience that I wrote about and sent it into the to Worldview, the NPCA magazine. Mm-hmm. And when they told me they'd pay me to publish it in the magazine, that was the first inkling I had that there could be a career there. Meanwhile, I was still committed to pursuing development work and uh, still really believed in the mission. And in Peru, I was assigned to work with a counterpart from CARE, which is, of course, one of the biggest aid agencies in the world, uh, based in the United States, I think in Atlanta. Uh, and they do plenty of work all over the place. They, you know, my Peace Corps experience, CARE, none of the CARE administration or the people who worked for CARE there were living in the communities. And that's what makes Peace Corps different. And I knew that. But I found that the CARE operation being a gigantic multinational aid organization, they, I saw them sometimes making decisions based on their own what seem like corporate goals. And, mm-hmm. you know, if they can get funding for nutrition projects, they will invest money in nutrition projects. If they can get funding for literacy, they will put their money in literacy. So in my community, there were a couple projects that had been going on before I got there and that I sort of started were my way into the town. And uh, I saw two of them be abandoned by care. And I had, they didn't do a great job of sort of offboarding the community and explaining mm-hmm. to the community why a certain initiative was closing down, they literally just stopped showing up. And so I had some of my uh, neighbors in in Peru come and ask me, like, what's up with CARE? Why aren't they coming? And did something happen? And is this project over? And I could, I didn't have a good answer for them. And I didn't have any answer for them, in fact. And that made me realize, like, in my own spirit, in my own point of view, I was a part of the community. I was not a part of care. I was a part of the community. Mm-hmm. And that that realization made me see aid agencies a little bit differently. And I found that to me, what was most interesting and most rewarding was my position in the community and sort of getting to know these people and their way of life and seeing how I could integrate into their way of life and support some of the things they were trying to do. And I found much more much more in common with these subsistence farmers I was living with than the, you know, sophisticated corporate style of the aid agency. And so that made me start second guessing the career path of working with a major aid organization and being, you know, a professional development worker. Uh, and meanwhile, accumulating so many interesting experiences and, and rewarding relationships that, I was compelled to write about and and think about in terms of, you know, who these people are and and how different people live lives differently and how I could be a member of the community while being basically like an alien to them. Mm -hmm. So it was that aspect of Peace Corps that made me realize, like, this is what matters more to me is sort of the storytelling and the, the life, not the work, it was the life that really resonated more with me. And... It might have been a, a knee-jerk reaction to, you know, one 
isolated pocket of, uh, you know, a mismatch of priorities between the aid organization and the community. I don't know how common that is in the world of international development. Of course I don't. But I saw it. I saw the effect it had on my friends and neighbors in the village, in the town. Mm -hmm. And that just made me rethink it all. And um, since I had had a little bit of experience uh, getting paid for writing, I started to sort of shift my focus to, you know, to think about how can I, you know, I have the good fortune to be here and to be able to live in this incredibly beautiful village, 10,000, 11,000 feet up in the Peruvian Andes with these people that, I would never otherwise meet or interact with people like this. And pretty much everybody I know here back in the States, they would never have an opportunity to, uh, to learn about how these people live and, and how they see the world and the things that they deal with. And so that was, you know, that was something that I thought, you know, I was in a unique position to take people where they couldn't go mm-hmm. and to share my experience in this town and what I learned about these people uh, and this was in 2003 to 2005, which at that point in Peru, the village you know I moved into and the village I moved out of were completely different. And then, of course, a few years later after I was back in the States, but keeping in touch with, with some of my old friends and neighbors who started hitting me up on Facebook, you know, I realized you know, I was there during a transitionary time where the, you know, the community was getting more and more access to the outside world and I was sort of a you know dropped into that and was a little bit of a maybe an on-ramp for some of them to to understand more western and digital and quote-unquote modern ways of living and so there was you know I, I felt like there was an interesting narrative there and that sort of propelled me more into a a, a place of thinking about storytelling and thinking about the diversity of experiences that people live in the world. And uh, that really encouraged me to write more and then eventually pursue a journalism degree and, and become a proper full-fledged journalist. Mm-hmm. Well, can you, can you take us back, take us back to your Peace Corps experience and really bring us into your village? And can, do you have a, a singular memory that really stands out or something that you want to share of positivity that really just highlights the life you lived day to day? I imagine I'm not the only one, and I think I remember this reading from reading about your experience in your book, but uh, it really crystallized for me when I was leaving my village. And it's kind of unfortunate. It's kind of sad that, you know, it took two years to get there, but I mean, it didn't take two years to get there, but it was in that last moment. So being a foreigner, you have an amount of trust with people that they can maybe confide in you or treat you differently than they can treat each other. And I think that gave people, you know, some, some outlet for doing things a little differently. And I certainly had a lot of candid conversations with, uh, you know, the young boys and the teenagers and the people who were, you know, felt that they could come to me for advice and for some hashtag real talk Mm -hmm. but uh and then you know the the my counterpart was a peruvian woman who did not live in the village but lived uh quite nearby in a little bit more of an urban area urbanized area certainly couldn't be called urban but there was a little bit more concrete and pavement where she lived and she would come up and work in the health post every day and for her like she wasn't 
like the villagers. She like they were subsistence farmers, and she was an educated uh, health worker. And so her relationship with me was also an outlet for her because she couldn't relate as much with the villagers, but I was sort of a bridge between them as well. And it wasn't until and you know being a traditional community, they had uh, rather conservative gender roles, and a lot of things weren't talked about. And you know, granted. It was a Quechua village, and I don't know how many people in your audience are familiar with Quechua people, but they can be actually pretty uninhibited, uh, especially when they're having a town party and people are drinking what is essentially grain alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know they, they would sometimes wear their emotions on their sleeve in moments of quote-unquote weakness. But it was in my, my going-away party in this final meal where we had a big table where we had myself, some of my counterparts in the village, the couple health workers I worked with, and then the teachers from the local school. And the teachers who worked in the school in my village, they were from the city. They would come in, you know, they would take the same trip from the city that I had to to get to uh, to get back and forth. But they, you know, it was a point of pride for them to consider themselves separate from from these people living in the village. They were like, we're modern, we're educated, and we are better than them, and so we are their teachers. And we'll come in and we'll help them out, but we're different. But it wasn't until that last meal, that last time that all of us were around the table for the first time, really. And there was, so we were starting to eat while they were still sort of butchering the other half of the cow that was slaughtered for this gigantic village party to sort of celebrate my time there and my leaving. And, you know, the fleshy, (laughs) I don't know in in how much detail I want to get, but uh, with a lot of people handling raw flesh, uh, there were some funny suggestive comments that were made about, you know, about the, the passion of flesh and, you know, it, it, that conversation evolved into everyone sort of around the table laughing about some sexually suggestive comments and topics that none of them would speak about with that kind of a mixed group. And so mm-hmm. it, it was then that it, that I realized that, I had a lot of individual relationships with these different groups of people. I, I got on with the health post uh, workers and the health workers because I could speak their language and, and the teachers as well. Like they saw me as a, as an, another urban modern person who wasn't like these subsistence farmers. But meanwhile, I had worked so much to be just a friend, a neighbor and a men- member of the community that I also had this trust and this relationship with the subsistence farmers who lived in this village. I realized then for the first time in that mixed group that I was I was a bridge even for them. So not just between them and my culture and my background, but for them to interact with each other in more honest and uninhibited ways. And you know, it's it's of course it's a shame that it happens at the very end of service, but mm-hmm. it was in a way, you know, validating because there were plenty of days where I didn't do a damn moment of work. And when it was just like, maybe, okay, I'll go and like sit on that rock and watch you guys play soccer. And they're like, come play soccer with us. And I like soccer, but I am not a very coordinated person. So, uh, you know, it, it didn't, I would play soccer with them once in a while, but often I would just watch and like, I'm happy to hang around, but I, you, you know, it's just not really my thing. And all that time spent just sitting there doing nothing, but just hanging out with them. I would sometimes you know, feel guilty about, and it was sort of at the end that I realized like, the fact that I 
was kind of a, a daily presence and just sort of a normal dude and a, a friend and a neighbor and not just this American come here to work and hit the ground running and we got to do projects and we got to push it. And of course we did plenty of, you mm-hmm. know, health and other related projects. You know, I did a, a fair amount of Peace Corps work as well, but the amount of time I spent just hanging out and really just sharing and living with people, the value of that really crystallized on that last day when I when I realized like my presence was sort of what helped them get out of their comfort zones with each other a little bit. And, and we had a fantastic time, you know, it was a ton of laughter and it wasn't even that we were drunk. We got drunk later on that, that evening, but it was, you know, it was just a, a nice celebratory meal that they interacted with each other in ways that they never really had before. And I I think it's because they had me at the table and that was really, it was nice to see that. Hey everybody, sorry for the interruption, but if you're enjoying this episode and the My Peace Corps Story podcast, please consider becoming a patron of the show. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash story or mypeacecorestory.com slash support. Patreon is an online platform that helps creators like myself get paid and fund the projects that they absolutely love doing. So if you want to help me continue to tell stories of Peace Corps volunteers for as little as $1 a month, please consider becoming a patron of the show. Head on over to patreon.com slash mypeacecorestory or mypeacecorestory.com slash support. Now, back to the show. Well, I can definitely say that in, in the, the short time that I've known you, I can recognize that you are very good at connecting with people on a, on a real level. Maybe that what makes you a good journalist or maybe be, that you... I hope so, you yeah. Lear, you learn those skills and you're able to use that to, to bridge these communities that never would have interacted because they, they confided in you and trusted in you because right. you had taken the time. Do you think that those skills that you learned in Peace Corps, maybe your skills that you refined in Peace Corps that mm-hmm. you had previously but really honed them, how have they made you better in your, your current profession as, as a journalist? Yeah, that's, you know, it's the humility that you have to have to see the world through another people's eyes is something that the Peace Corps is so good at training that into you where... You know, one great part of the training is you really, you, you, you get your expectations set to, you know, the, the, it's a, an important part of Peace Corps training to make volunteers understand that, like, you don't need to jump into a million projects. You should spend six months to just get to know people and refine your language skills and just find out who they are and how they live and, and what they do every day. And to have that sort of cover to just hang out and do nothing and just absorb and and share the mundane aspects of daily life with people that really you know set me up for i think being able to put myself in other shoes in other people's shoes quite well and to have a really, you know, to try to come into an interview, you know, as a journalist and, and I don't spend too much time creating uh, content anymore, but I started out, I wrote a bunch of magazine features. I started doing video, uh, interviewing and editing and putting together, uh, you know, uh, doing a bunch of storytelling and multimedia storytelling. And I think it helped me really develop a, an ego free way of interviewing and, and asking people about themselves 
in a from a place of genuine like I there's no way I can put myself in your shoes and I have no idea what you deal with and and the things that the things that you see you know in people's reactions to you and in the way the world perceives you I have no way I can't put myself in your shoes so I am genuinely interested to hear from you what your life is like what are the things you experience and I think that made me a better interviewer and certainly made it more natural for me to just sort of acknowledge that I, you know, I know nothing about you and, and a subsistent, a potato farmer in rural Peru can be as foreign to me as just, you know, maybe a, someone who is a minority, maybe a, someone who works in a random service job or something in New York. But, you know, I can, I can understand that that person has a completely different perspective and they have their own reality that is just as valid as mine. It's just completely different. So I think that it, it made me more open-minded and empathetic to the fact that the little mundane aspects of people's daily lives, you know, they, they could be completely different from the world I live in, even if we live in the same city, even if we are the same skin color, even if we are in the same profession or, or have a similar background or a similar socioeconomic status. Uh, it has really made me respect the fact that everyone is different and the generalizations are impossible. You know, even all these potato farmers in rural Peru, like they were different from each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one family's life and experience in that same tiny village of 230 people was different from a neighbor on the other side of that tiny village of 230 people. And that was just, it was, it was a fascinating realization I had in the Peace Corps. And I've definitely brought that with me. I still, I still feel that every day. Like there are, there's something you can learn from anybody and everybody has their unique experience, their unique reality. And it's all valid. You know, there's no, there's no assumptions you can make about how someone lives their life because of what they look like or what job they're in. And because you have no idea what their background is and what their relationship with their family is and what their relationship with their neighbors is and what their history is with their own family. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's given me a very open mind to, you know, really try not to make assumptions about people. I think mm -hmm. that's definitely made me a better journalist. And then in the things that you, you learned from Peace Corps and the experiences that you had, personally, I, I tend to learn the most from those times that are deeply challenging. Mm -hmm. They really, you know, rock me and, and, and check my beliefs and cause me to question my morals and just my place on this planet. Yeah. Do you have one of those instances to share where, you know, it was one of those, those difficult times in Peace Corps, but you came out a, a, a different person because of it, or maybe with a slightly different perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, as much as I wanted to be part of the community and really integrate myself, there's, it was very naive of me to think that people could see me as anything other than this, you know, big white, walking pile of money and you know ironically some of the some of the moments where I made the you know that really pushed my relationships forward were the times when I was vulnerable and the times when I made the wrong decision maybe and uh, I was very concerned about you know I wanted to make sure people understood that I was one of them and I was on their side and there was one incident so we were uh, my town was called Coyone, and it was actually a collection of four different small villages spread across a few hundred vertical meters of mountainside. And the town I, the part I lived in was about 230 people. But 
Um, we were a series of four towns at the end of this little valley, sort of at a roughly a cul-de-sac. But if you continued up the valley and there was a little walking trail and you could hike and you'd go quite far in, uh, there was a series of mountains, uh, snow-capped peaks at the end of this little valley that tourists would come to climb because I was in it. It was a mountain climbing and adventure tourism kind of area. And so we would have tourists coming through sometimes. People would come up in a taxi or a truck uh, if it was not if the road was not washed out. They'd get dropped off in the main plaza in my town, and then they would start walking to go up to the mountain. And that means uh, my town saw Westerners come through sometimes, and they had donkeys, and sometimes they would act as porters, and it was an important source of revenue uh, during the climbing season for them. And so I wanted to. I worked a lot with those guys to organize them, and you know. Previously, it had sort of been a free-for-all, right? Like during every morning during climbing season, whoever got to the plaza first with their donkeys would be the one who would take the, take the first climbers up, and they would just take turns. So, you know, it was important to me to sort of work with them to, to formalize their operation a little bit more and have a rotation of who's got donkeys and how many, and let's put a schedule together so everyone has an equal chance at, you know, uh, accessing this, this way of life. So there was... One incident, I guess, about a year in, into my service where uh, one day this guy came over and knocked on my on my door and was like, hey, he was like, Don Yiku, I, my name is Greg, right? So Gregorio in Spanish, but in Quechua, my village spoke Quechua. They had a, a Quechua version of the name Gregorio randomly. <laughs> uh, so a lot of volunteers, I think, adopt a local name just that sounds similar or that, but there was a Quechua version of my name, which was Yiku, spelled L-L-I-C-U. So... They would address me as Don Yiku. This guy comes to me, Don Yiku. Uh, I got this this check. You know, I was paid by these travelers, but the bank won't cash it. And what, you know, can you help me? Because I'm a white guy. So, of course, the mm -hmm. bank will pay me and they won't pay him. But since I'm a white guy, I can get them to pay me. So it turns out these were travelers' checks. And the mm -hmm. second box was not signed. And that is the first indication that the traveler in question did not intend to pay those traveler's checks to, to the person but i had seen this guy you know take the people up and uh and we hadn't really ever dealt with this particular issue before so i you know my inclination was like you know i had seen evidence of city folk kind of not going out of their way to help these people who were coming down from the villages into the city and so I was like, yeah, maybe I can help you out. So I'll go to the bank and I'll, and I'll you know, see if they'll let me just talk them into paying you. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the bank, you know, I was like, well, I work with these guys up in the village. I have, you know, we have a lot of uh, guides who work as sort of porters and guides. And, you know, the guy, the traveler and I, I lied to the bank because I was, you know, feeling my allegiance to, to this, this guy in town who I had a good relationship with. So, you know, I, I was like, the, we didn't have a pen handy, and so the guy couldn't sign it, but, you know, uh, can you help us out? I was like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And I was like, well, maybe, uh, all right, well, maybe he's still in town, and I can find the guy. So it was a couple days after the, the trip happened. And, you know, I wasn't going to go looking around the hotels in town for him, so I signed the check. Mm -hmm. uh, I maybe the statute of limitations has passed, but I forged the, the traveler's signature on that check because I, I wanted to believe my neighbor and wanted to do right by him 
not by you know the bank and the and the the western institutions that had that had screwed this guy out of money you know i was giving him the benefit of the doubt so i hadn't really hadn't really been deceived by my community members it was always you know nothing like that had happened before so I go to the bank and uh, I was like, oh, I was able to find the, the tourist and I ran into him in town and he was able to, and so I, you know, and, and of course, as should surprise nobody, a couple of weeks later, I got a call uh, and I had a cell phone. Uh, we had one phone in the village that didn't work, but I had a cell phone because it was 2003. This is the Bush Peace Corps. It was the first time, I think safety was a real big priority uh, mm-hmm. around that time and really starting to look at, and I, there was a gold mine across the valley, you know, many miles away, but uh, a giant Canadian gold mine had installed a cell tower for their workers. So I had perfect reception in my village. I was up in village in the village one day and I got a call from the bank or from my counterpart agency from care. They were like, Hey, the bank is looking for you. So when next time you're in town, can you stop by? And next time I was in town, I, I stopped by. I was like, Oh yeah, I heard you guys were looking for me, you know, playing dumb. And uh, one of the bank administrators came out and he was like, hey, listen, you know, the traveler reported these travelers checks stolen. And so, you know, you owe us the money that we paid you for them. And, you know, I didn't ask a single question. I was like, okay, here's the money. And, you know, this was another indication of, of white privilege down there where instead of being thrown in fucking jail, yes. I was just, you know, make them do right by them, give them the money they lost and we'll sweep it under the rug and everything will be fine. So after that, I went, you know, when I went back to the village, I was incensed. I, I felt violated, you know, even though I, I knew that I was doing something that was not, not legal, not appropriate, not following the rules, but I thought I was rectifying some bad luck that my neighbor uh, had had. And when I went back up, I confronted him. I was like, hey, listen, you know, the bank made me give him the money back because those are travelers checks and they, and the guy said they were stolen. And, you know, I know you told me that, that the guy just couldn't pay you or couldn't sign it or could, he gave these to you and you didn't have any idea what they were all about. But, uh, you know, he said they were stolen and did you steal these from him? Like I was, he just sort of looked down. He didn't say anything. And I was like, you stole them. And he sort of teared up and he was, he, he was like, oh, que, que vergüenza, like I'm so embarrassed. And, you know, really was quite upset. And he was one of the poorer, it was one of the poorer families in this already very poor village. And I really, you know, I, I was angry and I wanted to be angry at him. But, you know, in a way I was really at that point, you know, I knew I could absorb the loss of money. Mm-hmm. And so I was really trying to put myself in his shoes and, you know, you know, it was that it was genuine. I believe that it was genuine, uh, regret remorse because what he didn't realize, you know, what I told him, I was like, you don't realize that like, if I had been interacting with a different person at the bank, they might've been able to throw me in jail, kick me out of peace or report me to Peace Corps, kick me out. I don't know. I was like, there's a lot of bad things that could happen. I don't think you recognize the consequences that this could have had for me. And he was super upset and he was crying and like his wife came out of the house and he was like, go back in and like, don't you know, leave us alone. And you know, he didn't want 
to acknowledge it really. And so I was, you know, I was really trying to put myself in his shoes and understand like what made him do that. And, and I never really, you know, I never really understood. And he and I didn't really speak for the rest of, uh, of my service there. And it was, unfortunate and you know i told a couple people in the town about it and they were you know shaking their heads and oh what a terrible thing for him to do and that's so disrespectful to you and but you know it wasn't it was it was a bit of a wake-up call for my own naivete right i was <laughs> like i want to be a champion of the people and these are my people and i live here and i'm a villager just like them and and you know, on my second day or my first day in town, one of the first things I lived with the president of the community and, and it just so happened that the time, the day I moved in, they were doing a census. And so like, so the next morning I went around with my host father to everyone's house and we were making sure to register everyone's name and their socials, their ID number and how many kids they had and just sort of getting the town's details to feed to, for the population. And we got back that evening, like he had been doing this for a week or two. And so, uh, in the first couple of days that I lived there, I went on the last rounds with him. And one day at the end of it, he, before, you know, he was like, I'm going to go turn this in tomorrow to the district capital, but I'm going to, you know, let's write you in. And so he made an entry in the census for me as a, as a resident of this village. This was like right off the bat. I really felt, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm here for. I want to be part of this village. I want to live with you guys. I want to, and it was a bit idealistic and that was sort of my first wake up call of like, okay, I don't, you know, as much as I think I know these people and I think that we have honest and, and open relationships with each other and, and you know, that it's, I am an outsider and I can use that to my advantage and that is not necessarily a bad thing. And, you know, it really, it really helped me, I don't know, just be more, a little bit more critical about my interactions with people and my relationships with people. It certainly, you know, removed my naivete about, you know, I'm just like them. You know, I'm not just like them and that's okay. And that's good. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I should embrace that and I should be aware of that. And I should, you know, it, it sort of kickstarted. This was so about halfway through my service. So it really made me realize like, wait, I am different. And I am a rare opportunity for them to learn from and 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 I must say you know I I tried to ramp up quite a bit you know my my interaction with people and my even if it's just helping one little family I'm like I'm not one of them and I am going to leave I'm not going to live here forever I'm not a part of this community as much as I want to be and so I think that gave me a little bit of a more sophisticated understanding of my role there mm -hmm. it was difficult uh, it's a little bit of a, of a, I lost some innocence there. I'd like to think that I was trying to do the right thing, but you know, when I, when I think about it now and, and bank fraud is not doing the right thing. So um, most definitely not. <laughs> so I learned a, I learned an important lesson. Well, that story makes me think of a quote that was sort of passed around in my village that, uh, as long as a log floats in a river it can never become a crocodile. And sort of the same thing that, you know, as, as a foreigner, you know, I could live there for 10 years and I would never truly be a Burkina Bay. Mm. And just as you, you know, you would always have this privilege associated with you that you would always have to deal with. Right. 
Do you have a, a saying from, from your time in Peace Corps that you would like to share with us? And I might also call out that there is this Arabic tech too peeking <laughs> mm-hmm. out from under your sleeve. So I'm interested in, in, in knowing that, uh, what, what that means. But then also if you want to share something additionally as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, my being in Morocco was a completely eye-opening experience. I, have never, I had never spent any time in the Arab world. I didn't know anything about Islam. I didn't know much at all about Muslim culture. And, you know, it was what I, one of my first experiences was living with a host family in Rabat in the capital, and the brother was about my age, so it was great. You know, he was just another, another dude like me who was, uh, you know, just trying to meet girls and have a social life and sort of explore the, the Rabat nightlife. Uh, so my name is Greg. In Arabic, there is no G. There's a G. There's like some sort of a G, but there's no G. So nobody could really say my name. And so I started going out with uh, with Mehdi, and we'd go out with his friends and hang out. And so everyone was like, oh, who are you? And I'd be like, hi, I'm Greg. And they'd be like, oh, cool. Okay, cool. <laughs> so after, after about two weeks, uh, Mehdi... You know, he was like, this Greg thing is not working. We need to give you a Moroccan name because that is just not, it's just not convenient. And it's like, all right, sure. Uh, and so uh, in Morocco, their dynasty, they have, the king right now is Mohammed VI. And before that, it was Hassan Third, I think, or possibly the second. Uh, every, every monarch alternates between a Hassan and a, and a Mohammed, at least mm. for the past n- number of generations. So... It was a King Muhammad, and so they were like, we're going to call you Hassan. And Hassan means good. Yeah, it's the word Hassan, uh, and the name version, it sort of just means good. So, uh, you know, it was a nice positive word. And, and since nobody could even really register what my name was, because Greg, Giuk, like, crack, Greg, it, just nobody really could say it back to me. And so a lot of people knew me as Hassan and still do and i'm in touch with a lot of people back there uh on facebook not a lot but a few people from my time in morocco i'm in touch with on facebook and and they know me as hassan and it's like an alter ego of mine that you know it's a different identity but it's part of me and so i sometimes just find it funny and strange that to a whole group of people that i've spent time with and shared experiences with they don't even know my name, but it's because this name is also my name. And so I, I got a tattoo of my name, Hassan Marwani, the family I lived with while I was there. Their last name was Marwani. So uh, that was my Moroccan name at the time. And I, I put that on my arm just to remember always that it's a part of me and I carry it with me every day, tattoo or not. I, I think mm-hmm. about it often and, and it's definitely part of my identity and the way I see myself. Uh, so... And it's ironic, kind of, that in Peru, there was also a local traditional language version of my name. And so the people I interact with on Facebook from Peru, uh, they know me as Yiku. And so, you know, that, the aspect, that aspect of the name and your identity, uh, I guess my whole life has sort of been a patchwork. So this idea of, like, a name and an alias and a different sort of persona it all feeds me it's all different slices of the same pizza or the same different slices of the same pie um as far as expressions go though that i take with me uh i think it it really does focus on the name there was you know at the beginning of my time in peru i 
people would call me all sorts of titles and honorifics because I was a Westerner mm -hmm. coming in uh, with education and experience. They would call me Don Yiku was the most basic version, like Don, kind of a, a respectful term for just a, a respected man. And they would also call me Profesor, Profe, uh, as a teacher. They would call me Ingeniero, like engineer, just because I was white. I was like, I don't know nothing about engineering, and uh, but sure. And Doctor, they call me Doctor, uh, only because I was working with the nurse at the health post. There's nothing about me with any medical training whatsoever, mm -hmm. but they would call me Doctor. So it was... You know, it wasn't flattering or anything. I was like, you got the wrong idea. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an engineer. I'm not, I am just me and I'm here to work with you and help you guys out and learn, you know, and see what I can do to, to help you guys do what you want to do. And, you know, the good sustainable development lessons that, that we all take with us into the Peace Corps and, and also get reinforced in training. So there was a moment, uh, I don't exactly remember when, sometime in my first year of service, you know, probably a good six, eight months in when uh, I was hanging out with my host brother. There were two host brothers. One of them was a little bit younger than me and one of them was, uh, you know, a few years younger than that. Uh, and I would hang out with them a lot and we'd go mess around and, and play around with things and there was one time when we were playing with a baby pig and the pig sort of ran off and we were chasing it and messing with it. And it sort of uh, fell and tumbled down a rather steep hill behind the house down to the river. And we were like, oh shit, ran out. Because, like, you know, every piece of livestock is an asset for people. You know, it's mm -hmm. not something to take lightly. And we were chasing it around, just having fun, messing around one morning. And, uh, and my host father, who was in the house, he was, no, it was my host mother, they were both there, but my host mother, she heard the pig squeal. She then saw us running down the hill, and she admonished us. She was like, she yelled at Edwin, and she yelled at me, and she called me Yiku Cholo. And Cholo is a fairly common word, I think, in a lot of uh, Latin American and Spanish-speaking countries that generally is used, I think, to mean sort of a, a um, not a peasant, but a, a farmer, a, a rural-type person. And, but there they tended to use it for, uh, I don't know, like not in, you know, a kid who gets into a lot of mischief and it's, it's a little bit of an admonishment, but it's also, you know, a, a kind of good natured, like, oh, you're, what are you getting into? And that was the first time that someone had addressed me and said my name without an honorific before it. And so that moment, and then like thereafter, they kind of always called me Yiku Cholo. And some people would call me Don Yiku still. And, you know, that persisted to the end for sure. But there was something that broke down when she called me that. And then, like, I wasn't, you know, I was like, oh, man, I am sorry. I totally, yes, you're right. I was messing around and I should not have been messing around. Where I think, you know, it, it sort of broke down a barrier and it, it, it made me feel a little bit more integrated into the family when I was yelled at just like the kids. And so... That was sort of a, a recurring joke, at least in my family. But then every every once in a while, when neighbors would come over, or when we'd have a party, and the people from my family would yell at me and be like, "Hey, Yikucholo," and then other people would, you know, would sort of pause and be like, "Uh oh, mm -hmm. that is not a very respectful way to address him." And I, you know, then it they were they learned that I was fine with it and that it was all in good fun, and it broke down other people's defenses, and it was sort of a a, a physical, tangible 
sign of acceptance or sign of like, you know, a little bit more that, you know, for my flaws, right? Like they were also aware like, okay, he's not this like magical gringo who's like perfect in everything he does. Like he's messes around and sometimes screws up and does stupid mm-hmm. things. Uh, and so that really was a tangible thing that, you know, then they would always, you know, within my family, they would always call me Yikucholo and we'd have a good laugh about it. And that was, uh, so that, you know, I sometimes, I think, I remember that with a lot of fondness of being called Yikucholo instead of like Ingeniero and Doctor and all these mm-hmm. serious titles that I did not feel related to me at all. But then when they called me that, I was like, oh yeah, that is, I am definitely part of me is like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I thank you for coming on the show and telling all these great, amazing stories. And I want to just give you an opportunity to plug your the amazing podcast that, right. sh- that you're working on, which sort of connected us. So tell us a little bit about uh, your work in in telling Peace Corps stories. Yeah, well, I've been involved with the Return Peace Corps Volunteers of New York City for a few years, uh, a great group where we have a, a very motivated president, Sarah Porter. She, for about six years now, has put on a storytelling event. Uh, so Sarah and the rest of the group, they... Uh, organize these live storytelling events uh, every once a summer where we invite returned volunteers who are part of the group or, you know, acquaintances of people in the group to come tell a story on stage much like the moth. And that sort of unfiltered monologue of like, just tell us an interesting transformative experience from the Peace Corps has, you know, has, has led to some really fun and, and exciting and just really nostalgic evenings. So uh, we decided to put this into a podcast and share those stories um, really in an unfiltered way. Let the storyteller talk about their experience and and our goal, you know, we have such a diverse group of people in New York and people from uh, from who had been in the Peace Corps 50 years ago versus people who just got back a couple months ago. And we just really enjoyed the diversity of stories that people were sharing. So we decided to put it in a podcast. Uh, we've done one season so far. We're getting ready to start our second season now. It's called Peace Corps Stories, the unofficial podcast. We wanted to do that for legal reasons to make mm-hmm. sure that we people didn't misinterpret that we were speaking for the Peace Corps, but also because it was important to us to to show the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, warts and all. And the positive transformative experiences we have and sometimes the frustrations that people have with the administration of the Peace Corps or the way that, uh, that it's it, the role that plays in country. And, uh, so we're trying to just collect a real diversity of experiences and there have been some great ones and our storytelling events are a huge amount of fun when we actually do them in person, but we found that, uh, it's really nice to revisit them in podcast format. So you can find that on Apple podcasts on Stitcher on Google play anywhere you get your podcasts and uh yeah they're they're they tend to be you know 10 12 minute episodes from season one and we're going to expand the format a little bit in season two to to explore a little bit more uh the story behind the story with volunteers mm-hmm. yeah just once again for everybody that's uh, peace corps stories the unofficial podcast i cannot speak highly enough about the show you know before i started my podcast i went out and listened to everything that was out there and i was really taken aback with just the the quality of, of the stories and the production value so if anybody has enjoyed this show and wants to listen to a, a different style show and just get more in, into peace corps and the different varied experiences definitely check out that podcast you will uh it'll be well worth your time Thanks, man. Yeah, it's really, you know, I love what you're doing with this. And I think both of our projects really speak to the incredible tapestry of experiences that, you know, as you said, like we 
there are some things we all share, but we all have a different experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's it's endlessly interesting to explore all the different aspects of Peace Corps life. And, and so it's great what you're doing. And uh, we have a lot of fun with ours. And it's a, a rather different format. But mm-hmm. uh, I really... You know, I know I've loved your podcast and I think a lot of uh, our community feels the same way. And so I, I think there's a lot of good overlap and looking forward to seeing where you take it and, and listening to all be, everything that is to come on my Peace Corps story. Well, well, thank you. And I look forward thank to, you know, any opportunity that we can have to combine our efforts to, to tell stories, yeah. you know, Peace Corps or otherwise, you know, yeah. I, I look, I look forward to that. And I've, thank you for coming on the show and uh, spending several hours with me this yeah. evening. So happy to be here. And of course, you know, I, I read your book, so I had the, the benefit of coming in here feeling like I knew so much about you. And uh, if any listeners of your podcast have not read your book, I would uh, additionally volunteer a plug for it because it's just such a compelling story. And I think you explore it in a really interesting and and meaningful way. So uh, it was a a great read for me. It didn't take very long. It was a nice, engaging, quick read. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you. Coming from a... uh Wall Street Journal journalist, uh, that that speaks a lot. So I I thank you for those kind words. And thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Once again, if you want to stay better connected with me and the My Peace Corps Story podcast, head on over to MyPeaceCorpsStory.com, where you can find this episode, the show notes, and much more. If you want to know my personal Peace Corps story, please check out my book, Service Disrupted, available on Amazon. Every volunteer has a story. What's yours?